0: Let's turn to the Gospel of Luke uh, together, Luke chapter 1. And what I want to do is I want to be—I read the opening or the first section here of the prayer of Zacharias. So we're going to go to verse 67 and read a couple of these verses that really are just going to encapsulate everything I'm going to talk about today. So let's read together, beginning in verse 67. It says, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies, And from the hand of all who hate us, to to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Let's pray together. Father we want to look today at this glorious day this glorious promise that is embedded here in the prophecy of Zechariah and in the magnificat of Mary and ultimately in the plan of redemption that you that you have executed all throughout Lord the biblical history and leading up to this very day as we stand here before you as your redeemed people we want to celebrate that day and so we ask That You would bless our time and we pray for a special blessing, Lord, as we look over the, the promise of the Redeemer, as we think about the glorious day that would dawn in the coming of Your Son, Jesus. Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners. We pray that You would save. Save in our church. Save the children of our church. Save the visitors of our church. Save the the people that are affected by the outreach and the evangelism and the preaching and the missions of our church. Save to the uttermost through our church, Lord, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the title of today's uh, sermon, you may sit down, the title of today's sermon is uh, Abraham, Mary, and Zacharias Rejoiced. Three different people, one joy. That's my first point. Three different people, one joy. The joy of all of these individual people is the dawning of a great day. And Christmas is all about that day. The celebration of Christ coming into the world to save sinners. It is a day of promise, and it's a day that goes all the way back into redemptive history. And that's why I said... It is the, the rejoicing of Abraham, of Mary, and of Zechariah. If you would, they embody in their words and in their life and in the times that they lived, they embody the rising of this new day. It is a gospel day. Brothers and sisters, it is a, a joy-producing day. You remember what the angels declared. It is the tidings of good things, good news. It is the gospel. It's a gospel day. It's a soul-saving day. It is a sin-destroying day, a life-giving day, a serpent-crushing day. The gospel is. The coming of Christ is. Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is great cause for rejoicing. He appeared in 1 John 3, eight Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And on the way here, you may have felt some of the works of the devil today. Coming to church. And so it is good news that Jesus appeared in order to destroy the works of the devil. Mary, Zacharias are rejoicing in that day. They're rejoicing in the reality of the day. That's what Zechariah is exalting about. The reality, the dawning, the realization, the manifestation of that day. Abraham is rejoicing in the promise of the day. Abraham is rejoicing in the shadow of that day. The dawning of the light of that day. Mary and Zechariah are rejoicing in the sunrise of that day. And Abraham is rejoicing in the dawning of that day as the light is beginning to rise through the promise. It is a great day, brothers and sisters, because it unites all of God's people for all ages, in all times, in all different dispensations, through all the covenants, through all the generations of God's people. We are united by this great promise of this great day. It's the day that made Abraham and Sarah rejoice. Laughter came into their life. And that was nothing less than a foreshadowing of the child of promise. According to Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, that is the way that God preached the gospel to Abraham. God preached the gospel. God's an evangelist, are you? God preaches the gospel. And He preached the gospel to Abraham way back in that day. And He made him laugh. He made him rejoice. Secondly, looking at the promise itself, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. But as you do there, a little bit of the context of the promise of this great day. So I want to do three things with us today. I want to look briefly at Abraham and the promise. I want to look look briefly at Mary and her exaltation of that day. And then Luke, uh, uh, Zacharias at the end of Luke there and and finish off his prophetic song of that day as well. But you remember that the day comes to an unworthy man. Abraham stands at the front door of redemptive history as a great pillar, an example, the patriarch, the juggernaut of redemption, as someone has called him. And who is this juggernaut in redemptive history? He is, according to Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, an unworthy idolater. And so the day comes, the promise of that day comes to Abraham, not because of any worthiness in himself. The day begins with hope. Abraham's covenant promise comes in the void and the darkness of the chaotic world of idolatry. It says in Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah. And your father Abraham, and, the, and excuse me, Father Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all of the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac, Abraham did not deserve the promise. Abraham was lying in a, he was lying in the shadow of darkness, the darkness of his own unbelief when God spoke hope to Abraham. When he laid in ignorance and unbelief and the futility of his mind, bowing down to idols, God sovereignly chose. This man, you think of a great example of election, there it is, far deep into the crescent world of Mesopotamia, the fertile crescent there. God calls one man out and he calls Abraham out of his tents. And he he tells Abraham, look up into the sky, Abraham, and gaze on the stars. Because as you gaze upon the stars, there you have a picture. A small picture. You know how glorious the stars are? You ever been to Yosemite or something like that? And you look up into the stars and they almost look like dust. There's so many of them, right? The great multitude of the millions or billions or whatever the astrophysics are saying now of stars... That is something of a manifestation of the glorious work that God is about to do. And God gives Abraham this unspeakable promise. Genesis chapter 12. This unthinkable promise. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in, all, and in you, you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You and I sit in this room today. Because of that promise that God made to Abraham 4,000 years ago. Or however many thousand years It has been exactly. But the promise, in order for us to understand it, in order for it to have a full impact on Abraham, he needed to mingle the promise with faith. And that's why Hebrews focuses not just on the promise, but the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, it also focuses on this, the faith that Abraham had on the promise. Abraham's faith in the promise and in the word of the promise led him to a life of faith. This was a strange life. This was a, a lonely life, if you would. This was a life of trusting and depending upon the grace of God. It says in Hebrews 11, verse 8, By faith, Abram, when he was called, he obeyed, going out to a place where he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which had foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The promise of always meant for Abraham something better, something greater than the land of Canaan. He knew that while he was walking on the land of Canaan, that the land of Canaan was pointing to something greater. And he lived in faith of that. He lived in light of that. Jesus put himself at the fulfillment end of that promise when he says about Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad and that has a lot more to do than just proving the deity of christ i know we use that passage apologetically oh see jesus's pre-existence he was there before abraham he saw abraham abraham saw his day and so we'll point to different things and there is no shortage of opinion as to what exactly this means is it that Jesus was, it was seen by Abraham in some sort of Christophany there? Maybe looking over Sodom? Is that the fulfillment of it? Was it the offering of Isaac? What was it exactly? And I think really it is the dawning of the day when Isaac is born. That, 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 that indestructible promise that made Sarah laugh in disbelief that it would take place. That promise that, that made God tell Sarah that anything is possible for him. Anything was possible for him. The book of Hebrews is also helpful here to, to kind of understand how this is all fulfilled. It says in Hebrews eleven thirteen, 13, All of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a, from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So they saw the promise from a distance. They looked typologically ahead of themselves to the day of Christ. Abraham is so pivotal in the entirety of God's redemptive work. He embodies a life of faith. We know that. And a life that is lived symbolically As the gospel is represented in his own life, in the the events of his own life, Abraham rejoices when he becomes the recipient of the gospel promise. As he enters into the covenant with God in Genesis 15, 18, as he is given the promise of a son and as he sees the fulfillment of that promise in the birth of Isaac. And not only that, but also as he puts his faith in God, who is able to do the impossible. This is the gospel in the life of Abraham. And the events of Abraham's life reveal the day of Christ, because everything points to his messianic seed. We know this from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes it very clear what is going on in the book of Genesis. It's not just a dry history lesson. It's not just there for us to try to figure out the genealogies of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, my dear friends, is Christian scripture. It's for you. It's for me. We go back to it and we see the gospel in it. We see Christ in it. We see the promises in it. And so Paul says in Galatians three sixteen. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Not to he doesn't say to his seeds plural as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. So we move now from promise from the hope of the promise to its arrival. And in order to do that, I want you to turn back to Luke with me. And let's consider first the doxology of Mary. The doxology of Mary. The doxology of Mary and the song of Zacharias come as, if you would, like the great refrain of the song of redemption. It is crucial to see that the Old Testament is progressive history. It is unfolding. It is growing. It is organic It is connected to itself, the different events. It is a purposeful history. It's linear, but it has a purpose. It is the purpose to bring this promise to pass. That is everything that is going on in the Old Testament. It is the unfolding of this promise and you see this as Paul or excuse me as Abraham hands the promise down to Isaac hands the promise down to Jacob hands the promise down to the children of Israel hands the promise down to through the prophets to the davidic king until we see the promise day until the day dawns that's how it is designed the old testament is a collection of books there are law books History books, poetic books, wisdom books, prophetic books, polemical books against false false religions, etc. In the midst of everything, though, God is, what he's doing is he's bringing about the ultimate redemption of his people. The accomplishing of a million things as he weaves this whole story together all around this great, glorious promise. I hope you rejoice in this promise. I hope you look back now and see what the Old Testament is all about. It will change every everything about how you read the Old Testament. I hope! And I hope that you read the Old Testament just like we're doing in our men's study. Reading the Old Testament Christ-centered, Christocentrically. I don't want to use that big word, but I have to. It's a Christ-centered reading of Scripture. What's the Old Testament about? Christ. What was all the bread about in Leviticus and the sacrifices and the altar and the labor? What was the tabernacle and the temple? And why is it that the high priest has to go in there and represent everybody else? And what is that all about? Why do they have to wave the palm branches? Everything, my dear friends, is a symbol, is a shadow, to use Paul's words. Of the coming reality and substance that is Christ everything because scripture is designed in this way the authors of scripture often build great anticipation of the next redemptive event you notice that there are high points along the story and so God gives Adam and Eve a great promise, the promise of a seed. And then you read on in Genesis 4, and what you have there is Eve living in great anticipation. She even exclaims, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And most critical commentaries actually say that what that exclamation point was is Eve thinking the promise had come to pass with the birth of of Cain but it was not to be it was not to be and not only that but you have more than that you have Noah anticipating that it would rain one day and it did you have Abraham promised a great descendant a great multitude of descendants a great innumerable number you have Moses' generation they were left looking for another prophet that never came Deuteronomy chapter 34 never came the prophet in Deuteronomy 18 that was promised that God would put his word in this prophet's mouth and that you would listen to him and that he would be a prophet like Moses one from among the brethren and in Deuteronomy 34 verse 10 the author of Deuteronomy is careful under the inspiration of the spirit is careful to detail That prophet never arose. So you're left hanging at the end of the Pentateuch with no prophet. Where is he? When will he come? You remember what they asked John the Baptist. As soon as they saw the commotion going on in the Jordan. As soon as they saw there's talk of revival. There's talk of repentance. There's talk of renewal. Are you the prophet? They've been waiting for the prophet. And so on and on. God gives pictures. The prophets are left looking for a servant, king, warrior who will take away their sins. Just look at Isaiah 53. He is a servant. He suffers on our behalf. He is a king because God gives him, crowns him with a kingdom and majesty and makes him an heir. He is a warrior because he fights and he destroys our enemies and he divides the booty with the strong. Amazing, isn't it? He is our prophet, priest, and king. Malachi. Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, says one day the Lord will appear in his temple. And then you open up the gospel and there's Jesus, even as a boy, teaching in the temple. Just marvelous to see. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Look at the way that Mary interpreted the events that transpired on Christmas. <laughs> Look at the way Mary is a wonderful biblical theologian. So I'm going to let her explain biblical theology to us. It says in her Magnificat, and you see that title, the Magnificat, that's a Latin word for my soul magnifies. So here Mary is magnifying the Lord, saying, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of, her, of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on generations will count me blessed. For, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those that feared him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought low. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good t- good things. He sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Abraham, Mary rejoiced to see the day of Christ. Ladies, are you finding yourself having a hard time magnifying the Lord? Really magnifying the Lord? You may want to open up a commentary. Because, you know, you may want to start connecting the theological dots for yourself. Instead of just letting your husband take care of the doctrine. You might want to become a housewife theologian. To help you in your worship. To fuel the way you magnify Christ. Notice that Mary's song is a song of rich theological reflection. It is not just a song about how she feels. It is not just Mary weeping or crying or getting emotional or having a devotion. It is Mary reflecting on the redemptive history of God. His fulfillment of His covenant promises. When was the last time you sat and meditated on the covenant promises of God being brought to pass? Mary knows exactly what's going on. She expresses her, verse 47, again, she expresses her gratitude uh, uh, to God for uh, for saving her. She has no problem abasing herself before her king. She has no problem confessing that she is an unworthy slave, a servant. And the the word doulos means slave. We try to politically correct that term by saying something like bond-servant. Doulos just means slave. John MacArthur has taught that exhaustively through his book, Slave. She's not afraid to exalt God for His favor on God's people. And notice, she's also not afraid to talk about how God has mercy on His people, verse 50, and how God also has wrath for His enemies, verse 51. Tell tell me this, when was the last time you went to a Christian bookstore and picked up a, a book for women and opened it up and began to read theology about the wrath of God? It's probably not going to get on the top ten selling list, right? It's not going to be a bestseller. It doesn't even exist outside of a few exceptions. Evangelical circles have underestimated women. Mm-hmm. Mary is totally different. As a matter of fact, Mary has a has a, a really a, a ferocious holiness about her. A ferocious indifference to vanity. Rich, poor, she doesn't care. She's exalting God for, for taking notice of her lowly estate. She's, ta- she's noting that God does away with the rich and their pride and their pomp. But even more so, she also points out that God see, God touched her heart by helping the humble and the poor and the hungry and satisfying her with good things. But for our purpose here, it is her love of biblical theology that I want to focus on. Verse 54 and 55. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. See, Abraham's joy was that God would make him a great nation and would one day greatly multiply his descendants and indeed to bless all of the nations through the ultimate descendant, Jesus, his son, Abraham's son. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus, the son of Abraham. Mary understood the angelic visitation as a fulfillment of this promise. Mary's doxology is all about this that God has been faithful to His people. So this is a reflection on the attributes of God. This is Mary exalting in who God is, reveling, glorifying, praising, worshiping. God's faithful to help Israel, to keep His promises to the fathers, and to show mercy. Mary's words also reveal that she is thinking along biblical theological lines. She has not lost her, her. she has not taken her eye off the redemptive ball. She's tracking with scripture. She praises God that he's been merciful in his dealings with his covenant people, Israel. And she traces the promises of God to the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. She, see, she knows there's an unfolding plan in redemptive history. Things are coming to a climax, and she sees herself now as able to rejoice that that climax has come. The day has dawned. The Advent is here. The Advent is here. Mary doesn't just rejoice that she is favored by God personally, but that God has chosen her for accomplishing redemption corporately. Zacharias is no different. Let's look quickly at Zacharias because I skipped a ton of things because I knew that I could preach three sermons here and you guys probably feel like it is, but I can't help it. I want to look at Zacharias' song one more time. You can, you can split up the, the, the prophecy of Zacharias in two big chunks. Number one, verses 68 to 75. That would be about the redemption of God's people. And then, verses 76 to 79, would be the, the blessing that he pronounces over his child, John, the forerunner. The forerunner. Mary's Magnificat and Zechariah's prophetic song have many different things in common, but both of them, let me just point this out to you, both of them show that these two people were informed, they were Theologically, they were informed and they were saturated in Old Testament theology. Well, obviously, they didn't have the New Testament, but still, some people today have the New Testament and the Old Testament, and they're not saturated in any theology. Mary and Zechariah both exhibit this fact, that they knew their their Old Testament, and they knew it well. Matter of fact... Semantically, when you take the grammar apart of this and you look at this text, the allusions and the quotations and the echoes back to Old Testament text is profound. Profound. Just how elaborate and genius what's going on in this text. Mary, great dependency upon the Psalms. Zacharias, a great dependency upon the prophets. That is the writing of the prophets. We could say that for Mary, Christmas is about God choosing to have favor on the lowly and satisfying the hunger of the weary. That's what Christmas is about. Satisfaction. Satisfying your soul's hunger. Not physical hunger, merely. But more importantly, the hunger that Psalm 107 talks about, the hunger within, the hunger of the soul. I think that's what that's really getting at. Paul reminds us that God has chosen us despite the fact that we are foolish and weak and that we are nothings. Talk about bringing up the worldly. God has chosen, according to 1 Corinthians 1, the foolish things of this world in order to redeem us. And there was such a weak, seemingly insignificant little girl from Nazareth. Chosen as God bypasses all the politicians in Rome. God bypasses all of the religious leaders in Israel. Just get out of the way. Pastors, preachers, you know, Pharisees, high priests. I'm coming to this little girl in Nazareth. So that she becomes almost an embodiment of the redemption that God is about to do, that God is about to unleash. A salvation according to to Paul in 1 Corinthians that the world doesn't understand. Why isn't God just saving all the PhDs? Why isn't God saving just the brilliant people, the influential people? Why, why doesn't God just save everybody that's beautiful and strong and powerful and, and buff and tough and fit and funny and influential and charismatic and all of that, magnetic? What is he doing with Mary and Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It can if God is at work there. And he is. Mary knew her, her Old Testament well and she knew the words of Isaiah. Isaiah 57 verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is Holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite, lowly spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You know the story of Mary and Joseph and all everything that they went through. You know the stage in their life they were in. You know how they had to flee. You know how they had. She had to give birth in an unspeakable, inhumane, and 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 and, and just a filthy environment. And God had regard for the lowly. That's what I love about God. That's what I love about God. He redeems the lowly, the weak, the despised, the nothings of this world in order to confound and then to bring to nothing the things that are in this world, the political powers, the the, the united nations, those that have their, their, their hand on the nuclear trigger to bring to nothing the things that are. Only God can do that. For Mary and Zechariah, God is the covenant-keeping God who has mercy, loving-kindness. And I point this out for this reason. The word mercy, the word translated in the NASB, loving-kindness, is the Hebrew word hased Now, God uses that word redemptively, meaning this. He uses that word in particular to prove that he is in covenant with the people he decides to have hased upon. So that if he has hesed upon you, it is a special love, it is a covenant love, it is a special mercy, it is a covenant mercy. You see, the sovereignty of God, my dear friends, is not just about the controversy about the five points of Calvinism and shooting that out. The five points of Calvinism are about Love. That's why if Calvinism doesn't fuel your worship, you haven't understood Calvinism. Calvinism is not just to make us trip out on predestination. It's for you to be so humbled into the corner and say, God, why in a million, billion years would you choose me? Who cares if you damn the whole world? but you chose me. That's incredible. That's amazing. See, that's the marvel of the sovereignty of God. And if it hasn't reached that point, stop being controversial with God and be intimate with God. I had a friend who was battling Calvinism as so many of us have. And he said, one day, it was as if God told me, why are you so offended that I chose you? Why are you so offended that I would choose you? Are you offended that I put my covenant love upon you? And this is all about that, folks. God choosing to put his covenant love on a people that were not a people. On a people that were lowly, despised, not esteemed, not strong, not rich, not able, not powerful, not able to do anything for themselves. Really, Ultimately, when God acts, there is often a complete reversal of fortunes. So that when God acts, now, Jeru- now Israel is plundering the Egyptians. That's when God's working. A total reversal of fortune. The rich are being sent away empty-handed. Mary expects that God is going to triumph and that God's enemies are going to be brought low. How God is going to... You know, Mary would be so politically incorrect today. She wouldn't do good on Pierce Morgan. He's talking about God's enemies. God loves everybody. How God is going to bring about this help for Israel is through the descendant of Abraham. That's what all of this has in common. So, moving on. Zacharias, we could say... For Zacharias, Christmas is about God accomplishing this redemption. You see, see the phrase there, and look with me at verse 68 again. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. So much theology right there. But notice it doesn't say, he has made redemption a possibility. Notice it doesn't say, he has made redemption available. There is a good chance that you can be redeemed now. That's not how Zechariah sings. That's not what he's singing about. He's singing about redemption accomplished. Redemption accomplished. John Murray would be very proud of that. Redemption. John Murray wrote a book, Redemption, Accomplished and Applied. And so the theology of it is this God doesn't just accomplish redemption either, He also applies it. Probably the most important theological thing that you can learn about salvation is this fact right here. The word redemption in your New Testaments comes from the word redemption in your Old Testament. It doesn't come from pagan writing. It doesn't come from extra-biblical, pseudepigraphal, apocryphal writings. The word redemption comes from the word to redeem in the Old Testament. The word to redeem in the Old Testament only means one thing. That you bought something so that you will obtain it. 100% of the time. You buy a plot of land, you get it. You redeem a slave, you, re- you take it home with you. You redeem a piece of property, it's yours. God redeemed Israel from Egypt, and he took them out. No one is redeemed and then left there. What when, when God redeems, God obtains. That's incredible. So, Zacharias is glorying in redemption. He's glorying that God has provided this Davidic figure, this Davidic king, the horn of salvation. And this ties in beautifully with accomplishing redemption. The horn means something mighty. The imagery, whenever it says the horn of salvation, a horn is a symbol of power, a symbol of might, a symbol of ability. It's saying God is able. To save. And with this, the book of Hebrews agrees. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, God is able to save all of those who are drawing near to God through Him. God is able. His arm is not short. He can reach. He will reach every single person upon whom the promise is set. Every single person who is in His Israel, or as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, the Israel of God. The true Jew, the one who is inwardly circumcised by being born again. That's what it's talking about. The redemption that Zacharias envisions mainly had to do with the deliverance of earthly enemies. However, as Christ taught throughout his whole ministry, this is something Jesus had to teach his entire ministry to his disciples. It's not mainly about an earthly victory. Don't look for me to defeat the Romans. At least not right now. (laughs) He will defeat all of the kingdoms of the earth. He will crush all of his enemies under his feet. He will reign over all nations, all kingdoms. As the book of Revelation says, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. But, at this time, the disciples, like Zechariah, Mary, and the Twelve, they often looked to an immediate Implementation of an earthly kingdom with an earthly king and an earthly military where Jesus had to remind them time and time and time again that is not what he came to do. His kingdom was within. His kingdom was not by the power of the sword. He took the sword out of the hand of the church. He didn't put the sword into the hand of the church. Abraham, Mary, Zacharias, Three very different people, one unifying joy. Joy in God's covenant faithfulness, joy in his covenant mercy, whereby members are holy, uh, 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 where he remembers his holy covenant. I've got to get that right. What God is doing here is that he is remembering. That is so sweet to Mary and Zacharias. God did not forget. If God would have forgotten then there would be no Christmas. If God had forgotten me, well, then there would be no Advent. There would be no day dawning of salvation. There would be no accomplishment of redemption. Christ would not have come. But because God has bound Himself with an oath, He has bound Himself. He gave an oath. He swore to Abraham, our Father, unilaterally, you know By himself, of himself. When God swears, he can only swear by himself. There is nothing greater to swear by. The wholeness is upon God to keep God accountable to God. And he does stay accountable or perfectly faithful. And so that is why we can rejoice. And something marvelous happens in verses 74 and 75. I want you to look with me here in closing. Something marvelous happens here in redemptive history. There is a merging together of the covenant of Abraham and the exodus together in Christ. Those things now go together. Exodus language, Abrahamic language. Verse 74. After he see, after he says, In verse seventy-three about Abraham and the holy covenant, then he says in seventy-four to grant us that to, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, that is language of Exodus to rescue. That comes directly out of Exodus, and so does this that we might serve Him without fear. That was the reason why Moses told Pharaoh, God says, let my people go for what? So that they may serve me. And verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. So what Mary and Zachariah see is they see a new exodus is here. You know that your salvation is in exodus. God led you out of your bondage and your decay and your oppression and your darkness. You you laid in a place with great darkness. You were in the futility of your mind, dead in trespasses and sins, and God rescued you. And He called you out so that you might serve Him in holiness all the days of your life. This is so beautiful because the world lies in the lap of the evil one. They are in darkness. They can't celebrate Christmas unless they know the Christ of Christmas. They can't rejoice with Mary and with Zacharias because they don't love the covenant-keeping God of Scripture. They love the moralistic God. They love the man-upstairs theology. But they don't love the God of the Bible. And because of that, they remain in darkness Is it any wonder, therefore, that Zacharias sees the birth of John and Jesus, more importantly, as the dawning of the light of a great day, a day of salvation, where he quotes and alludes to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. And I will read that to you now. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness, they will be glad in your presence as the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And I am saying that applies to you and me folks. We're not waiting for Israel to rebuild the temple and then, you know, hopefully in a hundred, two hundred, five hundred, a thousand years from now, maybe this scripture will be fulfilled. You sit here today as a fulfillment of this scripture. Say whatever you want about the term Israel. Okay? And I'll close and I'll throw all your theology in upheaval here at the end. But. but the Bible does that all the time. Just on a real simple level. It's okay to think of yourself as the recipients of the promises originally made to the nation of Israel. Because we enjoy those promises on on a level and to a degree that is just on a spiritual, redemptive, soteriological level. It's undeniable. It's undeniable. Because of this great promise, you and I no longer live in the dark. You want to celebrate Christmas this year? Sit around and talk to each other about how you're not in the dark anymore. We can celebrate this great promise because of this scripture. And we can celebrate the fact that we're not in the darkness of this culture that's just going down the toilet with a new state every day. Now, some new state is, is legislating gay marriage. And I don't want to start talking about Duck Dynasty. <laughs> but thank God this year, you guys, that we are not in the darkness of our sin, the darkness of our upbringing, that we are not in the that we're still not in the traditions of our forefathers, I thank God He redeemed me from the traditions of my family reunions because there was nothing good about them. Thank God that He pulled you out of the darkness of your own ignorance. He brought you into the light. He showed you the truth, and the truth has set you free. Why do we celebrate Christmas, folks, Because the world can't. That's why. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that these great covenant promises are ours for the taking. That we can look uh, with Abraham, with Mary, with Zacharias, and we can rejoice that the day has come where light has dawned. And we have been brought into the light so that we can walk in the light even as you are in the light, the light of your counsel, the light light of your countenance. And Father, we thank you today for sending your son Jesus. Thank you for that great promise that you made good on. So many people don't keep their promises today. We are thankful today, Lord, that you kept your promise for it was the greatest promise that has ever been promised In the universe, that one day you would create an innumerable multitude of descendants to be fellow heirs with your Son, with Jesus Christ the King. Father, I pray that you would bless our church on this Christmas season. I pray that we would, however we do it in our house, that we would take a moment and reflect on the advent of Christ, on the coming of Christ, on the birth and the incarnation of Christ, that we would think about that so that we never lose sight of our gospel. And also, remind us to proclaim this gospel, to share this gospel with others that don't have the light, that are still in their darkness, that know nothing about Abraham or his covenant. But Lord, would you please do a work through us, Open eyes, open ears. Convict the heart, we pray. Help us to pray how to do it more effectively, more earnestly. Help us to take more risks in our families at work as you give opportunity. But help us, Lord, our life is short. We want to be used for your glory and for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close this song together.